Oh, good morning. Good morning. Today, get the joy of celebrating uh, two holidays at once, things close to the heart of God. We today celebrate Juneteenth, the end of slavery, the re restoration of dignity to so many people, um, and also Father's Day, two things close to the heart of God. So a happy Father's Day to you. Uh, fathers, I've recently joined your ranks and all of the joys and smells involved, and it's been a lot of fun. Today we're going to uh, resume our series through the parables of Jesus in Luke 10 with the story of the Good Samaritan. I think this is the only parable to have a law named after it. Good Samaritan law. Anyway, just an interesting fact. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Let me read it for us. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when, you, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's word. It's given to us uh, to show us what God is like and especially to show us the marvelousness, the beauty of Jesus. What I want to propose to you today is that the central question of this passage is the one that comes at the very beginning. Behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to, a to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer comes in all the way down the bottom at verse 37. You go and do likewise. And what is in between shows us, through the story of the lawyer, through the experience and through the question and through the response of Jesus to his question, what it would look like for us to somehow find a way into the never-ending life that Jesus is offering us here and now. Jesus wants to invite us to learn alongside this lawyer to see that we are not so different from him in the end. So let's pray that God will teach us these things. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us again to worship, to worship you and learn from you. By your spirit, we pray, give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have to show us and say to us today. Help me, Lord, to say only the things that you want to say. 
and no more and no less. By your word, show us what it would mean to become an inheritor of eternal life, never-ending, never-expiring, never-running-out life, here and now and forever. Just as you showed this lawyer all those years ago, Lord, would you be so kind to do that for us today through me. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Now, let's take a deeper look here. When, when we talk about the lawyer, um, we're not speaking of a lawyer in the sense that we'd use that word today, an attorney, a criminal defense attorney, or a business lawyer or something like that. This was a lawyer who studied the law of God, especially the first five books. Uh, you maybe have read, for instance, the book of Leviticus. This man would have been an expert in the book of Leviticus. I know that's the place where many of our Bible reading plans go to die. It was his specialty, okay? So he was obviously a lot of fun at parties and was just absolutely loved the law of God, loved to understand all the minutiae and everything like that. And so he stands up and puts Jesus to the test. This begins pretty ominously. And his question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this question was, it was not just sort of a question from his heart. It wasn't just sort of a question that he had a curiosity about. But what's clear when, when Luke says it's to put him to the test is that he's trying to trap Jesus in his words. It was a live theological question, and based on Jesus' answer, he could go to the people that disagreed with that answer and sort of leverage them against Jesus. But Jesus turns the question right around and says, how do you read it? What is written in the law? And the lawyer gives his answer, which is straight from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And Jesus says, that's right. That's right. Go do it, and you will live. Pause. I think the first observation we need to, to say, uh, whatever theological or ethical conclusions we draw from this parable, what Jesus has done right off the bat is to affirm the ongoing significance of the Old Testament. Some have taken this parable to essentially mean, you know, it doesn't matter sort of what you believe, what your beliefs are, what God cares about most is kindness, and the rest he can kind of care less about. But Jesus has taken that option right off the table, right from the start. Unpause. Here is really the core question. The core question that he comes to after this, and who is my neighbor? If we understand this question, we will understand the passage, we will understand, begin to understand our own hearts, we will begin to unpack the story of the entire Bible, actually. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? A couple of things to dissect. First, Luke gives us this little behind-the-scenes sort of insight. Uh, he tells us about the lawyer's motivation in asking this second round of questions, or second question. It was an attempt to justify himself, he, said, he tells us. What does that mean? What does that mean, to justify himself? And how in the world would, would that question achieve self-justification? The word justify has as its root the word righteousness. Uh, as a verb, it literally means to make oneself righteous, to become, to be righteous. Um, and though that sounds like a very ancient, very religious word, righteousness, being righteous, uh, we think of religious people, self-righteous people, whatever. But the need to justify ourselves, to be righteous, is not just an ancient need. And it's not just a religious problem. In fact, the Bible tells us it's an inbuilt feature of our human souls. It is not a bug it's a feature. Within each of us, there is a fundamental desire in our souls to experience what we call and what the Bible calls justification. 
to know with absolute certainty the answers to a few core questions. God has made us, made our souls to have the right answers to these questions. We need to know, do I matter? Does my life have significance? Am I lovable? But perhaps above all or underneath all of those questions is the one fundamental question, am I good? Am I right? Am I righteous? Jonathan Haidt is a secular uh, psychologist, has no interest in sort of pushing forward a Christian agenda, and he says this, an obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. When we aren't experiencing justification from God through the work of Jesus, which is sort of the center storyline of the Bible, we inevitably have to look somewhere else for that sense of rightness, that internal sense of goodness. Perhaps some of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, and it's probably one of the most moving images uh, that, that I can think of that, to come up with for this. Private Ryan is this soldier who has three brothers, and he's the fourth, and uh, news comes through that his three brothers have all passed away in combat. And so this news sort of comes to military headquarters, and they say, we, we can't have this. This mother apparently was going to receive you know, three telegrams on the same day, and they said, we can't make it four. They can't all die. And so they send a special, you know, military operation out to find Private Ryan, to save Private Ryan. That's the movie. Um, and there's this cute, you know, the rest of the plot of the movie is that, is get Private Ryan, keep him safe, don't let him die, and get him home to his grieving mother. And at the end of this film, uh, this, this special unit had been dispatched, and so many of them had died already to save Private Ryan's life. And at the end of the movie, they're sort of on this bridge and they're defending, you know, trying to keep him alive. And Captain Miller, who's the one who's been leading this whole thing, he's, he's been shot, he's been mortally wounded, and he looks up into Private Ryan's eyes and with his dying breath, he says to him, talking about all the lives that have been sort of lost to keep Private Ryan safe, and with his dying breath, he says to him, earn this, earn it, earn the sacrifice earn your life. The final scene in the movie is, is then Private Ryan, now an elderly man, and he's in Arlington National Cemetery kneeling before Captain Miller's grave, and he's, he's breaking down in emotional tears, and he's saying, as if to say to Captain Miller, I hope it was enough. I hope, it was, I, hope I was a good man. I hope it was enough. His wife comes up to him and asks him what's wrong. Ryan looks at her with tears in his eyes, and he says, tell me I was a good man. Tell me I lived a good life. And there's the problem. Without an objective test, a final verdict, a standard of righteousness, of justification, of goodness, how good must I be? We will always be left wondering, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Maybe you sense that this morning. The lack of confidence that you, have I done enough? Have I been good enough? Have I pleased God? This lawyer felt the exact same way. And his question back to Jesus demonstrates the fundamental characteristic of our human hearts, broken by sin. We all have the same kind of question as him. And Jesus demonstrates the fundamental problem with this approach to God. And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? What is he asking? The law is clear. How do I, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for the lawyer, that would have meant, okay, we have the list of kind of how we do that. Do this on Sundays, do this on Mondays, you know, don't do this, avoid this, do this. But when it came to what it meant to be a neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, 
Uh, there were rules for that too. Guess what? There are boxes to check for that too. But the, what was left unclear was the exact zone of responsibility. How far is the rule of neighbor love meant to extend? Do you see? What is left unanswered and therefore unhinged in the lawyer's heart is I can't yet know for sure because I don't know exactly how far that circle goes. In essence, the lawyer wants to take out a map of his city and a compass, you had one of those in geometry class, hand it to Jesus and say, I don't care how big the circle is, just draw it so that I can know that I've done it. To put it crassly, seeking to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus to build a fence of compassion. Who is in, who is out? Jesus, what is the compassion tax that God demands from his people? How much must I give before his demand is satisfied? To put it in the worst possible light, Jesus, at what point am I permitted to stop caring? What is the minimum I must do to keep God off my back? Who is my neighbor? Now, it sounds innocuous, doesn't it? <laughs> when you put it that way, who is my neighbor? It's sort of just, isn't it such a simple question? But when you think about it deeply, it is a huge problem. Perhaps it feels far-fetched. Perhaps it feels ancient. Perhaps this seems like a, not a modern problem for modern people. At the risk of ruining the effect of the parable, it's always, you know, the worst thing you can do to a poem is explain it. You have to just let it be, right? But let me... Maybe it's not, and who is my neighbor for us? And how much must I give to the church? 10% is the rule, right? Okay. And how many people must I, I try to share Christ with? Draw the circle. How, how many times must I forgive? As many as seven? I know God cares about sexual purity before marriage, I know, but how far can we go? If we approach God like this lawyer, and we all do, to some degree or another, we might find the edges of God's rules for our lives, but in doing so, we will completely miss God's heart. Imagine it from God's perspective. I mean, can you imagine, imagine your spouse coming to you and saying, hey, just let me know, how many times do I need to tell you I love you today before you'll stop asking? Oof. Your friend asking, hey, I, I'm enjoying the story, but how much longer do I have to listen to it before I get back to my TV show? How would that make you feel? <laughs> Pretty terrible. No one would accept that from their friend or spouse. How much less can God accept it from us? And remember, all of this is happening under the heading, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? For our purposes, we must see the first answer for the lawyer then and for us today is that if we were really encounter God and really find a way into the inheritance of eternal life that he offers here and now in the world to come, we must see that our hearts still bear the same questions as this man all those years ago. We are all prone to approach God like a taxpayer. Tell me what the fee is and let me live on the rest. Who is my neighbor? Jesus answers the Lord's question with a story and, finally, with a question of his own. Listen carefully. Listen carefully to try to see if you can sense, all, just on the first reading, how does Jesus' story actually answer the lawyer's question? Does it? 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was dangerous and difficult. It was a steep descent. It was marked by hills and caves and a winding road that was ideal for bandits. There were many places to hide, many places to ambush from, and it was not often traveled. And so lone travelers, solo travelers, took their lives into their hands on this road so that it became notorious. It was called, in those days, the way of blood. Because you could be almost certain that there would be something terrible happening on the way there or back. And Jesus tells us that this man was beaten, stripped of his clothing, which probably would have been valuable in those days. Clothing was expensive, not like today. And he's left half dead. Perhaps a more appropriate way to say that would be near death. He's incapacitated, and unless someone stops to help, he will perish. Verse 31 says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. When the priest appeared, almost certainly the lawyer thought, Aha, he'll help. A good man, a law-abiding man. A man who would show the community what it looks like to be an exemplar of the kind of law-keeping that honors God. If Jesus were telling this today, perhaps the first example would be a pastor. A pastor walked by on the other side. And if he were not scandalized by this, uh, he was about to be with the example of the Samaritan. But what would they be? What, or what would they, why would they walk by? They walk by, and you notice what it says? He saw, when he saw him, both of them follow the exact same pattern. When they saw him, they passed by on the other side. They crossed the street. Maybe they, I don't know if you do this, you sort of get your phone out and you glance at it when you move in the other direction, make it look a little more natural. I don't know. The important thing is, remember, this is Jesus' imaginary story. He's, he made it up to make a point, and so every one of the details is, is one he's in control of. And what's noteworthy is he doesn't tell us why they crossed the street. He just doesn't tell us. There are a multitude of reasons maybe why. Maybe they're in a hurry. They don't have time to spare. Both just busy on their way. They don't have time to take. Maybe they're worried for their own safety. After all, remember, lone travelers are in great danger. They take their lives in their hands as they go down this road. And who's to say, here's this man, uh, he looks half dead on the side of the road, but how do you know that this isn't another one of those ambushes? Perhaps if I go over there and get off my horse and get down to help him, that'll be just the opportunity for these bandits to spring their trap and get me. Perhaps it was that touching blood or a dead body meant that, according to the law of God, they would be ritually unclean. They wouldn't be able to go do their duties in the temple until they were cleansed. In the end, as I said, Jesus leaves this completely ambiguous. And it seems that the point is, in the end, they found a reason to ignore the man. They found a reason. They constructed a map of God's expectations for mercy. They drew the circle that, that the lawyer was requesting of Jesus, of compassion, and conveniently this man fell just outside of it. There was no clear commandment, no obligation, and therefore no mercy. And for whatever reason, they concluded, this man is not my neighbor. And so they passed by. You can see Jesus slowly building his case against the lawyer's question, slowly showing how this question is perhaps not the right question at all. 
from other parts of the Bible, we know that in the lawyer's eyes, the Samaritan was just absolutely the wrong kind of person. Uh, even though they uh, were from the same sort of historical ethnicity, they had sort of merged with others, and they didn't follow the law of God as the, as the lawyer would have. And this is, by the way, one of the things most dangerous to a person who's religiously self-justified or in any other way, non-religiously self-justified, is someone who's in your same group but doesn't keep the rules like you do. This is a person, the Samaritan, who doesn't have the law of God set to his standard of justification, and therefore he's a threat, and therefore he's an outsider. And so Jesus, let's look again, verse 33, a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. It might be lost on us that not only does this Samaritan have no religious obligation, no ethnic obligation to this half-dead man, but since he came all the way from Samaria, which is even further north of Jerusalem, all the way down to past Jerusalem and on the way to Jericho, there's no way in the world he could have considered this man a neighbor. And yet, what does he do? How does he respond? with no compulsion from the law, no compulsion from God's religious rules to make him do it, he had compassion. And let's look at the kind of care that this compassion provides. Verse 34, he went to him, just the opposite of what the priest and the Levites do. They see him and cross to the other side. Rather, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. This was the sort of the antiseptic first aid of the day. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, or whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. When I come back. He stops, as we said, at great risk to his own personal safety. He stops. He goes to him. He touches him. This bloody, half-dead, beat-up man, he touches him. He doesn't hold this man at a distance. He doesn't say, are you okay? Toss him a bandage. No. He makes the man's bloody mess his problem. And he treats his injuries. You notice he points out that he pours on oil and wine. And and while that was sort of the first aid care of the day, he could have easily told the story without including those details. And it seems as if um, Jesus is invoking the fact that in the temple, what did you pour on your sacrifice? Oil and wine. Here's the Samaritan who, he's not going to the temple, he's not, and yet he seems to be acting more like a priest and a Levite than the priest and Levite himself. Lastly, he provides treatment and shelter for this man at great personal expense. He goes so far as to provide for his future expenses. He makes a plan to come back to the very same inn to provide future care. It's a, it's a situation ripe for uh, exploitation of this man. And yet he hands him his credit card and says, whatever it takes. And Jesus closes his story come statement with a simple question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Which of these three? Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote an essay uh, called Three Kinds of Men. Three Kinds of Men. And he described the three kinds of men. The first group, he said, are those who sort of live for their own passions and they they recognize no real obligation on their behavior or life. No real moral code. I'll live how I'd like. But the second group he describes like this. He says, in the second class are those who do acknowledge some other claim upon them. 
the will of God, the categorical imperative, or maybe just the good of society. And they honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than that claim will allow. They try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax. But they hope, like other taxpayers, that what's left over will be enough for them to live on. He says, members of this second class, to which most of us belong, he says, are always and necessarily unhappy because the tax which this moral conscience levies on our desires does not ever leave us enough to live on. As long as we are in this class, we either feel guilty because we haven't paid the tax or we feel impoverished because we have. We have done the duty. What's he saying? We are, most of us, if not all, Christians or not, living like moral taxpayers. We know we ought to be good, and we know there are things that God expects of us, and we're willing to pay the tax that our system of morality demands. But no more. And in the end, we're stuck. We're stuck. Our systems of morality, whether religious or irreligious, leave us in this sort of moral limbo. If I do the things that I know I ought to be doing, in the end, I might end up miserable because it's going to ask of me something that is painful. It's hard to do. It's hard to take care of people like this. The example that Jesus sets is impossibly high. Or on the other hand, to not do it leaves us buried in guilt because we haven't done what we know we ought to do. And we end up on this yo-yoing cycle between law-keeping and law-breaking, never really free, never, definitely never experiencing the kind of eternal life that Jesus is talking about here and throughout his life. So where is the way out? Do you see this dynamic in your own heart? Always feeling like, have I done enough? I'm really not sure. Man, I could have done this, I should have done this. I would have done this, but it would have made my day so much harder. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In the end, it's the Samaritan whose acts of mercy have nothing to do with compulsion and everything to do with compassion who demonstrates the merciful heart of God. And as we see, Jesus has completely turned his question on its head, completely turned our question on, on its head. Not any longer, who qualifies as my neighbor? But rather, am I acting like a neighbor? No longer, is he my neighbor? But... Could I be his neighbor? Not, who do I need to treat like a neighbor? But rather, who in my vicinity, wherever I happen to be, whether I'm way 50 miles out of town like the Samaritan or right where I am, is in need of a neighbor like me? Jesus puts us squarely back into his line of questioning. And who is our neighbor? When we try to paint God into a corner, by sort of litigating his law into boxes we can actually check, all we do is we expose that we haven't really understood his, his heart at all. And in the end, as we see in this story, self-justification will always shrink God's heart to the smallest possible box. Taxpayers no, never want to pay more than they have to, right? Uh, not me. But we know that isn't right. Where, where, where is the way out? Is there a way forward? Is there hope for us? Yes. And we must, we must remember... What is Jesus' intention in telling this story to the lawyer then and in providing to it, it to us today? Is it to shame us 
and sort of cancel us for our lack of compassion? It is, is it simply to criticize us for sort of our lack of theological aptitude? You should have known this is how things work. You can't be the second kind of person. Remember how this story started? How do I inherit eternal life? What do I do? What must I do? What Jesus wanted most of all was for this lawyer to see that despite all of his knowledge of God's rules and God's regulations, what he needed most of all was God's mercy. The call of the Good Samaritan is not given. This, this story would make absolutely no sense if Jesus' point was, if you want to be self-justifying, here's how you do it. You just have to make sure in the future that when you run into someone who's half dead on the side of the road, make sure you help them. That's how you inherit eternal life. If that's the point, then this whole story sort of makes absolutely no sense. But what if it's given so that this man and that, so that we ourselves could see that God's call of mercy is higher than we ever could have imagined? It could never be constrained to a box that we could ever check. And this is not just th- true about this, the law of mercy to neighbors, but about God's entire law. None of us, higher than we could possibly obtain, uh, who could possibly make it their habit to pour out this kind of grace on strangers that they find dead on the side of the road, half dead on the side of the road? And yet, at the same exact moment that Jesus crushes this man's sense of self-righteousness by saying, here, the, the requirements are much higher than you ever thought, than you ever could fulfill, than you ever would, he provides a solution. Because if we're trying to justify ourselves, God's mercy is completely unattainable. We will never be able to act it out. We will never be able to check that box. But, but, and this is what Jesus most desperately wants the lawyer to do and most desperately wants us to do. If we collapse in the midst of our self-justifying efforts, God's mercy is no longer a threat. God's mercy is irresistibly good news. Naturally, as the lawyer heard this story, he would have put himself in the shoes of the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, What must I do? I I must be like the Good Samaritan. I must be like him. But if he goes that way, if he puts himself in that man's shoes, then this story absolutely crushes him because it shows that God's demands seem to be infinite. But what if he dared? What if we dared to do, as Jesus seems to be inviting him, not to put himself in the shoes of the Good Samaritan, but in the shoes of the man half dead on the side of the road. What if the God's demands actually crushed him, actually left him feeling half dead, like it might make us feel right now, and we were on the side of the road to Jericho? What would we most desperately want? God's mercy. What if we were in vital need of the kind of care that God would provide from a questionable passerby what if what if this man and what if we too were to humble ourselves and to no longer live like miserable taxpayers but to inherit the kind of joy that only jesus can offer how would it be if he received if if he were to approach god like that like a half-dead man on the side of the road utterly in need utterly vulnerable utterly laid bare before god's demands What would happen? Well, God has told us, through the person of the Good Samaritan, what God's heart of mercy is like. He would be embraced. God would go to him. 
he would be healed. His wounds that he has inflicted on himself through self-justification would be mended. He would be carried. His debt would be paid. His future debt would be accounted for and he would be given a new life. What Jesus wants most from this lawyer and from us today and the ultimate answer to the question that started this all how, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We must see that God's standard is impossibly high, but his heart is even higher. And if we will let these expectations crush us as they are designed to do, then what we will find is that God's mercy is more. God's mercy is greater than all of our sins. And if we will come to him in the half-dead state of this man on the side of the road, he will care for us out of his heart of compassion. And in the end we will find that the kind of demands that God places on us are not death and sadness and grief and life-stealing. We will find that following Jesus, no matter what he asks of us in the future, will become life and joy and peace. Because no longer are they demands levied on us as a taxpayer, but they're the kind and joyful leadership of the kind of God who says, take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and lowly of heart. You'll find rest, real rest, rest from all the striving, rest from all the self-justifying for your souls. Will the lawyer respond? Well, the curtains close. We don't know. In the end, it's only us left on the stage. Will we respond?